Hey everyone, welcome to our next video in our Jeremiah Bible study. If this is your first time watching, or someone has shared this with you, Brian Walsh and I have been alternating each week as we make our way through the book of Jeremiah. Uh, and We encourage you, if you haven't had a chance, to go back and watch or listen to any of the other, um, any of the other lessons in this series at our website, godsredeemed.org, or feel free to subscribe to our podcast on your mobile device and get those delivered directly to uh, your phone. As always, we hope that you'll open your Bible with us this week as we study along. Um, hopefully, this will be a helpful uh, Bible study guide to you as you as you work your way through the book of Jeremiah. A few weeks ago, my last time with you, we covered five chapters uh, together during that video, and it took about 55 minutes. So I wanted to go ahead and reassure you that that is not my intention tonight to go 55 minutes. In fact, this week, we're going to be covering seven chapters. So you can do the math on that and, and see how long uh, you think this will take. Uh, just be thankful that you have a pause button uh, and a mute button while you're studying through this What. Uh, in this virtual format that we're, we're going through and you can stop and restart me whenever you would like. Um, when we get back to the auditorium, you're not going to have that luxury. So enjoy that and take advantage of it. This week, like I said, we're going to be uh, covering seven chapters uh, and we're going to bounce around quite a bit uh, from uh, time periods. We're going to be looking uh, under the reign of Zedekiah. We're also going to be looking under the reign of Jehoiakim and we're going to be moving back and forth between those. But as we get to the end of our study this week, we're going to reach the climax of this book, what we've been building towards. All quarter, we've been seeing how Jeremiah faithfully preached the consistent message that he received from God. And he over and over again, he's, he's preaching, you're a rebellious nation. Turn back to God before it's too late. If you don't turn back, the Lord will send destruction from the north and your city will be destroyed. You will be taken into exile. Surrender to your captors. Surrender to uh, Babylon from the north. And that's what we're going to see tonight in our study as well. The fall of Jerusalem. That's the climax we're going to be building to. And we're going to take a look at some things that Jeremiah had to go through immediately leading up to Jeremiah's destruction and what events occurred during that final attack. So tonight's study, we're going to be looking at chapters 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39, as well as chapter 52. We're going to throw that one in there, and I'll explain why in just a second. So as an overview, we're going to look at chapter 34, where we see that the Jews betray their servants and God. Um, chapter 35, we're going to learn about the Rechabites, and we're going to see uh, Jeremiah use them as an object lesson uh towards the, the people of Judah. Chapter 36, we're going we're gonna to look at the most blasphemous event in the Bible. So make sure you pay attention to that. Chapter 37, Jeremiah is arrested for treason. Chapter 38, Jeremiah is left to die in a pit. And then chapters 39 and 52, the, we're going to look about the look at the fall of Jerusalem. And I've grouped these two chapters together because they cover the exact same series of events. And in many parts of the book, they are word for word. So we're just going to look at those together and see what differences there are between those um, as we as we uh, close out our study this week. So without any, any further 
uh, introduction, let's go ahead and jump into chapter 34, uh, where we see the Jews betray uh, the ser their servants and God. For timing and, and context here, we're, we're going to be looking at about Zedekiah's reign. So we're, we're close to the end here. Uh, in fact, verse, verse 1 tells us, When Nebuchadnezzar and all the kingdoms of earth under his dominion were fighting against Jerusalem and its cities. So that, that's the time period when Nebuchadnezzar was, was doing that. We also see in verse 7 that the only two remaining fortified cities besides Jerusalem are Lachish and Azekah. They're protecting the southwest side of Jerusalem. So Babylon comes in from the northeast, made its way through Judah, destroying the cities in its path, and now only three fortified cities remain in Judah. And we're probably somewhere within two to three years uh, before the fall of Jerusalem. And I can only imagine what the people are feeling at this time. The fear, the tension, the chaos, the hunger maybe. We may be a little early for hunger right here, I don't know, but but when that when the siege happens, they, they start to lose their food. And, and I can't help but think about our own nation, how we've been in turmoil the last few months uh, for various reasons. And, and you can almost feel the tension and the fear, and you can see the chaos going on. Uh, and, and what we're experiencing is bad enough, but it's nothing like what Jerusalem was suffering. Imagine if what we were feeling is multiplied many times over and our local city here was constantly under attack. Our food sources removed. You're looking outside the city at a brutal army of people who want to take you captive or they want to kill you. They want to destroy your city. Add on to that the message that, that Jeremiah has been preaching this, uh, this entire time that your city is going to be destroyed. You can't escape that. You will be taken into exile. So you need to surrender to them and, and have your life spared. That, that's how you're going to, to, to escape this alive. These are turbulent times in Jerusalem right now. Very tense, very chaotic. And lucky for them, they have one of the weakest leaders that they could possibly have in Zedekiah on the throne. And we're going to see a lot of that tonight. We'll see him uh, flip-flop back and forth. Remember, he was just a puppet set up by, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar to, to lead the people, but, uh, but he was set up by the Babylonians. So that kind of sets the stage for us to begin here in chapter 34. The first thing we see in the first seven verses is Jeremiah giving Zedekiah yet again another warning from God. And he says, God is giving the city to Nebuchadnezzar. The city will be burned. You will not escape. But instead, uh, instead you will be captured. You're going to stand face to face with King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, you're not going to die in battle by the sword, Jeremiah tells him. Nebuchadnezzar is not going to kill you. Instead, you'll be mourned uh, as other kings have when you die. You, you will you will have a, a, a normal death. Um, we'll see at the end of our lesson tonight, though, that Zedekiah does not listen to this warning that he is to surrender, that he is not to escape. Um, because we're going to see he tries to escape, and he meets this exact fate that Jeremiah describes. So... Uh, then we learn in verses 8 through 16 that this message from God was delivered in response to a covenant that Zedekiah made with the people in Jerusalem and then broke. So Zedekiah decided this was a great time to start honoring the Sabbath year commandment of the Lord, where in the seventh year, all the people would release their servants and set them free. And you can read more about the specific commandment and the details involved in Deuteronomy chapter 15, Exodus 21, Leviticus 25. They all outline kind of the Sabbath year, the sabbatic year, and what, what's supposed to take place during this year. 
Now, why Zedekiah chose now was the right time to start observing this or that this was the right covenant to keep right now, I don't know. Knowing Zedekiah's character and how weak he was, this very likely could have been a last-ditch effort out of desperation to please God. He's looking for anything he can do to escape destruction. Maybe he's trying to follow Hezekiah's example when God spared them from the Assyrians uh, in Isaiah chapter 37. Uh, regardless of the reason, they entered into the covenant and they committed to release the servants um, as, as they were supposed to do in, in year 7. But in verse 11, it says they turned around. They turned around from the one good thing that they had done that would have pleased God. They turned around from that and they looked. They took back the servants that they just set free. And God told them through Jeremiah that this action, this, this Sabbath year, it was part of the covenant he made with his people. They had recently done right in entering into that covenant before him. That, that was a good thing. But they profaned his name by turning back and keeping their slaves. They'd almost done what was right. But in fact, they actually made even worse because they turned away again by vainly entering into the covenant with the Lord. And I think this is important because it shows the complete disrespect and unholy attitude that the people had towards the law of God. They would do it if it could possibly save them from impending doom, but it wasn't important enough for them to actually follow through and honor their commitment to God uh, through that covenant. And so verse 17 through 22, Jeremiah communicates the punishment they will receive for breaking this covenant. Uh, God says, you didn't release your servant, so I will proclaim a release to you. I release you to the sword to the pestilence and to the famine. I will give the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, I will give them into the hand of those who seek their life, the army of Babylon. And in just a few minutes, we're going to see how the things that, that were told in chapter 34 come to play and, and unfold exactly as God says here. So moving on to chapter 35, we come across the Rechabites. And timing for this, we're actually jumping back a, a couple years, about 20 years or so, to Jehoiakim's reign. Um, and what occurs in this chapter is another physical object lesson uh, by Jeremiah. This time, he uses the example of this group of people, the Rechabites. I, I, I don't guarantee I'm saying that right, but that, that's the way I've been saying it, and I'm not going to change now. So the Rechabites, he uses the, these people to teach a lesson of God's people, uh, to God's people in Jerusalem. So we got to ask the question, who are the Rechabites? They're actually, if, it, if you can trace it back in genealogies, they're descendants of Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, which, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, they, they've been traced back that far through various genealogies in the Old Testament. Um, this particular branch of the family we can trace back to their father Jonadab in 2 Kings chapter 10, um, who was the son of Rechab. Uh, Jonadab was one of the men who helped the prophet uh, Jehu purge the house of Ahab, if you remember, um, going around and killing all, all of uh, Ahab's descendants, getting rid of, of his household. And we learn here in chapter 35 that Jonadab set a standard for his family to follow. They were not to drink wine, they were not to build a house or plant any vineyard, but they were to live in tents and sojourn the land. And they followed that standard for 240 years. That, that's, that, that, that goes back to the time of Ahab. About six generations, they kept those standards that Jonadab set forth. 
and they were loyal to their father and faithful to his traditions and standards that he laid out for his family. And so what Jeremiah does here in the first 11 verses of chapter 35 is he tests them and whether or not they're going to be loyal and faithful to those standards. And they prove to be faithful. He invites the group of sojourners to, to a, a man of God's home. It could be a prophet or just, just someone who's faithful to God. Um, he, he invites them to, to this home and offers them wine. They reject the wine. And they cite their father, Jonadab's command. They say, our father told us not to drink wine. They went on to explain that we follow all of his commands. We've only dwelt in tents. We, we, we sojourn the land. The only reason we're in Jerusalem right now is that we're looking for refuge from the Babylonians. That, that's the only reason they're there. And so they have been faithful to their father's standard and command that, that he, he laid forth. Now, verses 12 through 19 get us to the point, to tell, tell us why Jeremiah is doing this. And, and we learn this from God's address to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And in verse 13, he says, Why do you not receive instructions by listening to my words? You see, the words of Jonadab are observed. He said, don't drink wine, and the Rechabites don't drink wine to this day, 240 years later. God says, I've spoken again and again to you. I have sent prophet after prophet to you. I told you to turn back to me, away from your evil ways. Don't worship other gods. I've told you all of these things, but you have not inclined your ear or listened to me. Therefore, because you have not listened to me, the way the Rechabites have listened to their father, all of the disaster I've pronounced will come to fruition. All the things I've said, they're going to come to fruition. If you had listened to me, I could have stopped. I would have stopped. I would have forgiven. But because you have not listened, I will uh, bring all that to fruition. Then in verse 18 and 19, the Rechabites are re rewarded for their faithfulness to their father. And it is said that Jonadab would not like a man to stand before God always. So here Jeremiah uses the Rechabites to show that it indeed was possible to uphold a moral standard. It was possible to follow your father's will. But the Jews have just chosen not to do it. And something for us that we can learn from this is looking at the Rechabites and the influence that they had and the resolve that they had. You know, the first thing I thought of was we're sojourners in a foreign land too, aren't we? We are in a foreign land, uh, just like just like the Rechabites. We are not to to uh, build our treasure here. We are not to to build our homes here in in, in a spiritual sense, but our home is in heaven. We are just, we are foreign here. I'm sure it wasn't easy to turn down wine when being tempted like they were, but because of their commitment to sticking to their moral standards, they decided long before this event came up who they were going to be and what they were going to do. They were going to follow their father's commands. It was part of who they are as Rechabites to do those things, as, and it was possible for them to resist. The same is true for us today. It is possible for us to resist temptation and evil. We just have to make the commitment and decision to hold fast to the standard of God's word. And in doing so, we'll most likely stick out like the Rechabites. Uh, and, and no telling what kind of influence we could have on those who see us when we're dutifully trying, uh, without hesitation, following the word of God and, and not... Uh, rejecting and not not listening to God like uh, like the people of Judah. 
So that's chapter 35. Going on to chapter 36, we come across the most blasphemous event in the Bible. And now our timing, we're, we're still in Jehoiakim's reign, about the fourth year. Uh, Jeremiah's been preaching for about 23 years, so that gives us some time frame there. And the events of this chapter are set up here in the first 10 verses. And in verse 2, we see that Jeremiah was commanded to record all the words that the Lord was spoke, had spoken to him concerning Israel and Judah and the nations on a scroll. Now, my guess is the scroll was significantly shorter than the complete book of Jeremiah that we have. Um, a couple things I, I was thinking about. Uh, number one, this takes place halfway through his ministry, so we, we have a lot more recorded for us today. Uh, there would have been less material, if you will, uh, for Jeremiah to dictate. Uh, number two, this scroll was read three times in the same day. Now, I've read the whole book of Jeremiah. It could be done three times in the same day, but it, it would be a, a, a task to do that. Um, and this was easily read three times in the same day and reacted to. Um, the other thing I was thinking was the message of Jeremiah uh, could actually very easily be condensed into a scroll. Uh, very easily condensed into a smaller message. Because if you've been studying along with us, one of the things me and Brian have actually talked about a couple times is that there's a lot of overlap and consistency and repetition in the message that Jeremiah preaches. He preaches it to different people at different times, but the words really don't change. The, the concept does, doesn't change. And, and so it, it could easily be condensed into a smaller uh, message that could be read one time. And so here Jeremiah is being asked to record that message on a scroll so that it could be preserved and it could be read in various places and so that the people could hear the calamity God has planned and maybe, perhaps, turn away from his evil way and be forgiven. And I think that this is just another example of God loving his people so much. He wants his people to turn back to them and he wants to give them every opportunity to turn back so he can forgive them. And, and this is another example of how he's communicated in every way possible, uh, through prayers, through prophets, through speeches, through letters, uh, through action and object lessons like the Rechabites, uh, judgments, encouragements, and now a written scroll, just another way that he's communicating with uh, his people and trying to get his message across. So the way Jeremiah does this, we see in verse 4, he calls Baruch, a trusted scribe that we see several times work with Jeremiah, and he dictates all the words of the Lord to him. And it's interesting here to see the progression of how these words are recorded in verse 4. Baruch wrote on a scroll, the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. So we have the words of the Lord spoken through the mouth of Jeremiah and now recorded by the hand of Baruch. Just kind of interesting to see that this is indeed the inspired word of God uh, coming from God through Jeremiah to Baruch on the scroll. So Jeremiah instructs Baruch then to read this scroll of the temple on a fast day when lots of people would be there to hear. Now he does this because somehow Jeremiah is restricted at this time. I don't know if he's imprisoned. I don't know if he's banned from the temple from the things that he's taught before. I don't, maybe he's just hiding out for safety reasons, but whatever it is, he's restricted and unable to do this. And so he, he asks Baruch to go and read the words of the Lord. And he does so in the temple in verses eight through 10. In the next section of verses, verses 11 through 19, we learn that Micaiah from the, the palace hears Baruch read the scroll and he becomes very concerned about the things that it says. He goes and relays the message to the officials and scribes in the palace and, and, and he 
he, he relays that message to them. It's important to note here, not all the officials were callous and disregarded the Lord. You know, we know some were sympathetic due to how they spoke up when Jeremiah was arrested and spared in chapter 26. But those that were sympathetic to Jeremiah and the Lord were definitely in the minority. It was a very few that were. So Micaiah goes to the officials, tell them what he's heard, and they call for Baruch to come read it to them himself. And it was read in the palace. So we've had it read in the temple. Now it was read in the palace to the officials. And once it was read, they were fearful, the, the officials were, and they wanted to report it to King Jehoiakim. Uh, you know, let's keep in mind, we're 20 years out from the fall of Jerusalem, but Nebuchadnezzar's been on the move. He's been, he's been working his plan of world domination. And everyone in the palace uh, is fearful of what Babylon is capable of. And so when they hear a message like the message from Jeremiah, they're fearful. And this message that says destruction is coming from the Lord and it's coming by the hand of Babylon, they would become very afraid. Uh, and, and they were very afraid. And also, at the same time, the officials knew Jehoiakim, and they knew that he had a reputation and how ruthless he was to God's prophets. And so, at the same time, they wanted Jehoiakim to hear and heed these warnings. After validating the message, and that it truly was from Jeremiah and from the Lord, they warned Baruch, and they warned Jeremiah to go hide, because they knew what Jehoiakim was capable of. So then in verses 20 through 26, we see that the scroll is brought to Jehoiakim and read. Uh, they barely get through reading a few columns before Jehoiakim stands up and slices the scroll with a knife and throws it in the fire. This blatant and in-your-face disrespect and lack of fear for the Lord shown by Jehoiakim is really astonishing. And I've read through it a couple of times, and it's amazing. Um, one quote I read about this event in a commentary says that this is one of the most blasphemous actions recorded in the Bible, that one would show such contempt for God's word. Jehoiakim didn't even wait for the whole thing to be read before he cut it up and threw it away. Or threw it in the fire, I'm sorry. And when you think about Jehoiakim and who he was, this is quite a departure from his own father, Josiah, who, when he was presented with a scroll found from the Lord, he took it and began making sweeping reform. Jehoiakim, on the other, on the other hand, shows no interest, no respect, no fear, no reverence, and most of all, no repentance. Now, the remainder of this chapter, we see that while a scroll may be destroyed, God's word can't be destroyed. And so the Lord commands uh, Jeremiah to dictate another scroll to Baruch, the same as before, but with one addition, and that's a special judgment for Jehoiakim, uh, that he would have no one else sit on the throne of David, um, and he would die with no respect. His descendants and servants would be punished, suffering all the calamity God has declared because they chose not to listen. So that's chapter 36. Moving on quickly to chapter 37, we see that Jeremiah is arrested for treason. Now we're moving to, towards the end of Jerusalem. We're moving towards the end of the siege. Uh, we're in Zedekiah's reign, and we're in crunch time. We're, you know, in this chapter, there's a break in the siege. So we're within that last 18 months, but there's a break. And we know in verse 5, it says, Pharaoh's army had set out from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who had been besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they lifted the siege from Jerusalem. They had to go take care of this Egyptian army who was coming up to try to save Judah and Jerusalem. 
And we know that Zedekiah had been openly rebellious to Babylon. Even though he was propped up as a puppet by Nebuchadnezzar, he was desperate for anyone to help, and he reaches out to Egypt and asks for help. So they come, and that distracts uh, the Chaldeans long enough uh, so that they have a little break in their siege. Now, Zedekiah is in a really vulnerable position here because he's reached out, he's extended himself to Egypt, but now he's rebelled against Babylon. So he, he's got to be terrified. He's got to be very desperate right now. Um, he's looking for every opportunity to escape this situation because Babylon, when they come back, they're not going to be happy that he reached out to, to Egypt. So in the first 10 verses of chapter 37, Zedekiah is desperate enough that he, he needs to reach out and see if Jeremiah's God might be able to help situate the situation. Um, so he sends two men, one who supports Jeremiah, one who opposes him, to ask Jeremiah to pray to God on their behalf. And they have a glimmer of hope, right? The, the siege is lifted. Babylon's left uh, temporarily. There's a lull in the action, and maybe if they pray hard enough, God will spare them, and Egypt will destroy the Babylonian army. But this calling out to God is too little, too late. The Lord's, an the, the Lord's answer is, don't deceive yourself. Don't, don't deceive yourself. The Chaldeans will be back. This isn't permanent. And even if they were defeated, the wounded men left would rise up and burn this city to the ground. This temporary lifting of the siege should provide no relief. God's judgment still stands, and the city will still be burned. So th this is not a time for relief for Zedekiah. Verses 11 through 21 give us uh, a, a different event that happens during this uh, break in the siege. Uh, Jeremiah attempts to take this opportunity to leave the city and claim some property in his homeland uh, uh, back in Benjamin. Um could possibly be the property that he redeemed in chapter 32, but there's no specific indication on, on that, uh, that aspect. Um, anyway, he's on his way to claim the land, and he's arrested as he tries to leave the city. And the claim was that he was trying to desert and go over to the Chaldeans, which makes sense because he's been preaching to everybody that they need to desert and go over to the Chaldeans and surrender uh, to save their life. And so he tries to defend himself, says, that, that's not what I was trying to do at all. But the officials weren't having any of it. The, he was arrested, beat, put in a dungeon, and left there for many days. Now, while he's in this dungeon for many days, Zedekiah secretly pulls him out and meets with him, asks if he has heard a new word from the Lord, hoping for better news than before. Uh, Jeremiah's reaction here is interesting. Interesting. Um, kind of reminds me of Paul uh, when he was before Festus and Agrippa and how he, he defended himself uh, but also challenged them on the truth. Uh, the message from God here hasn't changed. He said, yeah, I've got, I've got a word from God. You will be given into the land of the king of Babylon. It's nothing new. This is the same thing I've been preaching. But then he challenges King Zedekiah. He, he says, why am I here? What did I do to be put in prison? I don't see your prophets who said Babylon wouldn't come, come against you here but why am I here? They were wrong. My, my words are coming to pass. Why am I here in prison? And then he asked to be transferred away from the dungeon in the house of Jonathan where he's at. And Zedekiah moves him to the court of the guardhouse and ensures that he's fed with a loaf of bread every day until the food runs out. So chapter 37 ends with Jeremiah in prison. Now we come to chapter 38 
And we're still in Zedekiah's reign, but we're closing in on the last few months of the siege. And we've got a couple clues in this chapter showing how close we are. You can look at verse 4, where we see that the number of fighting men were greatly reduced and discouraged. Now, whether that was due to being previously taken away with the good figs, we know a lot of the mighty men were taken away uh, in some of the earlier waves to exile. Um, maybe these fighting men had died in battle, or maybe they're listening to Jeremiah's teachings and they're willingly surrendering um, because that's the main issue we're going to look about look at in this chapter. Uh, so we know the number of fighting men were reduced and they were discouraged. Uh, verse 9 tells us that the famine has set in. There's no more bread in the city. And verse 19 tells us that there's been a large number of deserters, not just the fighting men, who have crossed the siege line to surrender to the Chaldeans, uh, presumably following Jeremiah's uh, instructions. So the effects of the siege are definitely being felt in Jerusalem at this time here in chapter 38. And so the first half of this chapter, verses 1 through 13, describes Jeremiah getting in trouble again. He's preaching the same message he, the same message he has been. He who stays in the city will die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans will live and have his own life as payment and stay alive. Jeremiah is actively encouraging as many people as he can to go over to the Chaldeans to give themselves up. That's how they're going to keep their lives. That's how they're going to be safe and go 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 to exile. Um, you know, and, and that's a very tempting proposition. When you're hungry, when your army is weak, that's very easy to follow and say, okay, well, that, that's, if that's how I'm going to spare my life, that, that's, how, that's what I'm going to do. And we see here that the officials are unhappy with Jeremiah doing this, obviously. They don't want to see their people crossing over and surrendering. Um, you know, they charge him with being discouraging to the men of war who are left telling them to surrender. They say, look, first he committed treason by trying to go over there by himself. That's what we looked at last chapter. And now he's hurting morale by encouraging everyone else to do the same thing. So Zedekiah, the great leader that he was, allowed them to take Jeremiah and, and said, I'm powerless against you. You know, there's nothing I can do. And, and it's just amazing here. You see how weak Zedekiah really was. Despite actually valuing Jeremiah's relationship with the Lord, he's gone to him several times to ask if there's a new word from the Lord. Um, despite uh, saving him the last time he was in prison and taking him out and transferring him to a new place, now he's flip-flopped and he's powerless to help. Zedekiah basically washes his hands of him and turns him over, similar to Pilate with Jesus. That, that's kind of what, what I immediately thought of was the way that Pilate... Let, just kind of turn them over to, to the people. It's also not unlike how Darius acts with Daniel. Um, you know, when he says, it's the law, what can I do? I've already decreed it. I'm powerless here. But ultimately, he cares about Daniel and doesn't want to see him, him suffer. And so we see that here with Zedekiah. So they throw Jeremiah in a cistern or, or a deep well, and they leave him there to die in the mud. And if, if you, you're interested, I'd, I'd encourage you to go to Lamentations. Um, specifically here, Lamentations 3, uh, chapter 3, Jeremiah uses this, this exper experience in the pit to describe uh, the despair that he was in. He describes being in a pit, uh, water being over his head, and calling out. 
Um, but all of Lamentations is really a good uh, glimpse into uh, some of the emotions that Jeremiah experienced firsthand going through these events. And so I, I encourage you to go uh, to, to kind of add that, supplement our study with that. Um, but he's in the pit, but there's a man watching all of this unfold. And he comes on the scene in verse seven. In verse seven, and that man is the original Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, I didn't even know this man existed before uh, doing a, dive, a deep dive into Jeremiah here. Uh, when when someone says the Ethiopian eunuch, we automatically think of, of the Book of Acts, where uh, the Ethiopian eunuch is in the chariot and and uh, is converted there. Uh, this is a different eunuch, obviously, where several hundred years earlier, uh, and this is a servant of Zedekiah. He hears what happens uh, to Jeremiah, that he's thrown into the pit, and he appeals to Zedekiah, asking to save Jeremiah so that he doesn't die in the pit. And we see Zedekiah flip-flop again. He says, sure, take 30 men, go save him before he dies. Something that stands out to me about this, and just, just reading this account, is the care and gentleness that Ebed-Melech, the, the eunuch, had for Jeremiah and the gentleness he, he and precautions he took in taking care of Jeremiah. He goes to a storeroom, grabs old cloths and rags, and, and gives them to Jeremiah so that he can have some covering and padding as they lift him up out of the cistern. And you can imagine some rough ropes and, and things like that would, would be very uncomfortable and painful. But he, he went that extra mile to not only save Jeremiah, but make sure he was comfortable and protected him in doing that. In the next chapter, in chapter 39, uh, we're going to see that Ebed-Melech is actually rewarded for his actions for saving Jeremiah and being faithful to God. And he's told that he'll be spared when Jerusalem falls. Now, the rest of this chapter records another secret conversation between Zedekiah and Jeremiah. Uh, verses 14 through 28. Again, Zedekiah asked Jeremiah for a word from the Lord. Now, at this point, if you're Jeremiah, you, you're thinking, okay, I've done this several times before. And, and, and Jeremiah says, okay, well, number one, you can't kill me if I tell you. I'm not going to tell you if you're going to kill me. Number two, are you actually going to listen? Are you actually going to do the things that I tell you? Because Zedekiah has asked multiple times, we've looked at tonight, and he hasn't acted on anything Jeremiah has said. In fact, he's, he's been weak and flip-flopped and turned Jeremiah over to, to those that wanted to, to arrest him. But Jeremiah responds. He gives them a word of the Lord, and it's the same thing. Surrender, and your life will be spared. The city will not be burned, and your household will live. At this point, Zedekiah knew what was right. He... He knew what he was supposed to do. He just lacked the courage and backbone to step up and do it. He knew that his actions could save his own life, the fate of his family, and the city. He wasn't willing to take action, though. And in verse 19, we learn what is making him hesitate. And I don't know if this is an, if this is an excuse or if this is really why he's not doing it. But he says he dreads the Jews who have already surrendered. He's worried that they're going to kill him once he is taken to Babylon. And... Jeremiah takes that and goes, okay, I, I'll assure you, they're not going to give you over. You're not going to die from them. Please obey the Lord in what I'm saying to you, that it may go well and you may live. Jeremiah is pleading with him now to obey God. It, you can almost feel desperation from Jeremiah. Jeremiah really does love the people of God. He loves 
the, the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, the temple of God. He loves Je Zedekiah. Zedekiah spared his life now a, a few times, and, and I believe he loves Zedekiah, and he wants to protect him. He wants, he wants to protect as many people as he can, and so he's pleading with Zedekiah, just surrender so that the city can be spared, so that your family can be spared. But he also warns him again what will happen if he doesn't surrender. The women who are left are going to taunt you with, with their song. Uh, your reputation is going to be ruined. Your family is going to be killed, and the city is going to be burned. And so Zedekiah, at the end of this conversation, swears Jeremiah to secrecy over their conversation, uh, gives Jeremiah a cover story, and again, saves Jeremiah, lets him live in, live in the guardhouse, and Jeremiah remains there in the guardhouse until the day Jerusalem falls. Now, this is the last, uh, you know, uh, last, last event we see surrounding Zedekiah here, and I think th there's an important lesson we can learn from Zedekiah. And... That is how he treated the word of God. God's word remains constant. It doesn't change. It doesn't change just because you want something different. It doesn't change because you do something good or you do something bad or you, you, know, you want it to say something different. It doesn't change. Zedekiah keeps reaching out to Jeremiah hoping there's a new revelation, hoping that maybe something he has done has earned some favor in God's eyes. You know, he, he let the servants go. He took them back, but he let the servants go. He saved uh, God's prophet. He, per, you know, maybe the break in the siege is good news and Babylon won't come back. But Zedekiah is doing this because he wants a different answer. God's answer doesn't change, though. Maybe Zedekiah is expecting uh, Jeremiah to be like the other false prophets who I'm sure when Zedekiah comes back and asks a second time, if he doesn't like it, the next time, oh, Babylon isn't going to come back. Peace, peace, right? That, that's what, what they've been saying. But Jeremiah's responses to, to Zedekiah here, really it's the Lord's responses, aren't changing. They never change. They're the same every time. Surrender and save yourself, your family, and your city. It's that simple. That's the same way God's word works today. Marriage and divorce, baptism, the work of the church, any other spiritual topic you want to look at, no matter what our own heart desires, no matter what we want it to say or feel it should say, we have to follow God's word. It, it's not going to change. And in the same way Zedekiah is, we will be judged whether or not we follow God's word. Zedekiah didn't follow God's word and was judged. We will be judged whether or not we act on God's word today. And that brings us to our last two chapters, chapter 39 and 52. Again, we're going to cover these chapters together because they're very similar, almost word for word in many places. This event, uh, the fall of Jerusalem, is such an important event in the history of God's people that it's recorded four different times. Uh, these two, chapter 39 and 52, but then in 2 Kings 25 and 2 Chronicles 36, you can read pretty much this very similar accounts uh, to what happens. And I encourage you to go and kind of put all that together uh, in your own study. Again, timing, Zedekiah is reigning. We're at 586 BC. Jerusalem has just gone through 18 months of being surrounded, besieged, and attacked by the Babylonian armies. In chapter 52, it tells us that the famine was so severe that there was no more food left in the land. The, the siege was, was so effective, there was no more food in the land. And so what I'm going to do here is just lay out the events as they're, as they're recorded. Um, we're going to incorporate both chapter 39 and 52 and just kind of get an overlay of what happened 
and then I'll make a couple observations at the end. But the first thing that we see happen is that the city wall is breached. And as the Babylonian army comes in, the officials come in through the walls, and they set up camp at the gate. Um, perhaps this would be a command post, maybe, as they're making decisions on what they take with them and who they kill and who they take back to exile. They have set up camp at the gate, uh, at the gate once they've broken through the walls of Jerusalem. Now, during the night, Zedekiah tries to escape the city. If you remember back to chapter 34, Jeremiah explicitly told him, you can't escape. You cannot leave. You cannot escape. Don't try. But he tries it. And what happens? Well, the Babylonians catch him and take him uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, which, who is 200 miles away at this point in Riblah in the land of Hamath. There, Zedekiah has to watch while the words uh, that Jeremiah warned him about come true. His family was killed in front of him. He was then blinded and, and bound and taken to Babylon where he would remain until he died. It's interesting, he didn't die in battle, which Jeremiah said he would not die, uh, but he did have to see his family killed. His city did get burned, we're going to see. And in fact, the next thing, then the Babylonians burn the palace, they burn the temple, all the houses, and they break down the wall. Again, just as God has described, the city would be burned and the wall destroyed. Then the Babylonian officials, they make some decisions on who to take with them, who to leave behind. They took most of the remaining people with them to exile, but left the poorest of them to tend to the land. Uh, chapter 52 describes all of the bronze, silver, and gold instruments removed from the temple and taken to Babylon. That will come into play later uh, as we get into uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, even, even Daniel. We see everything of value was taken. The Babylonians then took the remaining priests, officers, advisors, leaders, anyone else who might have been resisting at that point. They took them 200 miles away to Nebuchadnezzar, and he struck them all down. So that, that's pretty much what happened. At the end of chapter 39, we learn the fate of two individuals during this process. We learn what happened to Jeremiah, and we learned what happened to Abed-Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch. Can't talk. So... What happened to Jeremiah? Nebuchadnezzar gave orders that Jeremiah was to be taken care of, looked after. No harm should come to him. They were to do what Jeremiah told them. That's pretty fascinating and a stark difference between how they treated everyone else. Somehow, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians learned about Jeremiah and the things he preached. No doubt this was providence, uh, God fulfilling his ultimate promise to Jeremiah of protecting him while he spoke the words of God. Um, but you can also consider the words that Jeremiah spoke directly benefited Babylon. He encouraged as many people as he could to surrender. And that helped Babylon peacefully deliver more uh, captives to exile. And it also helped them weaken the army. I'm sure as people left uh, Jerusalem into Babylon, they probably asked and, and, and described Jeremiah's preaching. Um, but we see that through his work, he helped Babylon complete their purpose, which was to deliver God's punishment and destruction. And so Jeremiah was released from prison and given into the care of, of uh, Gedaliah for safekeeping. Uh, Gedaliah was appointed the new governor of Judah and was a friend of Jeremiah. So he was in safe hands at that point. We also see the fate of Abed-Melech, which we already talked about. Um, the Ethiopian eunuch saved Jeremiah from dying in chapter 38. He was spared. He, he was not delivered into the enemy's hand, but he was, he was spared because he trusted in God. 
Now, at the end of chapter 52, a couple details there. Uh, verse 28 through 30, as Jeremiah is wrapping up the entire book, this is the last chapter of the book, he gives account of the people taken into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. And most likely, this is not a complete number of all who went into exile, I believe it was 4,600, but perhaps just the males who were taken. Um, some scholars suggest the full count is much higher than that, um, but, but many, many agree that this wasn't an, an accurate count, a super accurate count. Then verse 31 through 34, we see a description, we jump ahead in time, we see a description of what happens in Babylon to King Jehoiachin, who reigned for only three months in Judah, um, but he was considered by many as the last rightful king of Judah to sit on David's throne. And so when he was in Babylon, he, he was there as a, as a captive. Uh, during this transition of power that happens in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar exits the picture, a new king rises up, and Jehoiachin finds favor with the new king. And as he's released from prison, shown great respect, and given much influence the rest of his life there in Babylon. So we see kind of a glimpse of the future there in chapter 52. So, really fast, a couple of thoughts as we wrap up our study this week and consider the fall of Jerusalem. These chapters outlining the events of the fall, chapters 39 and 52, are really the finale to all of Jeremiah's prophecies. Everything we've been talking about has been leading to this moment, when Jerusalem would fall. They describe the ultimate fulfillment, with the exception of, of any of his messianic references, um, it's the ultimate fulfillment of his life's work, uh, of, of his warnings, his teachings, his encouragement. Um, and it's with these events that Jeremiah is finally vindicated. Uh, all of the trials, all of the emotions he faced while speaking for God, all of the beatings and, and all of the horrible things he suffered, he has finally proven to be a true prophet of God. All the things he said came to pass. All the specific things about specific people, all of, all of the promises of the destruction, the fire, everything came to pass. Another thing these events show is that God honored his promise to deliver Jeremiah from his enemies, even while others were destroyed around him. Um, you know, we've referred back to chapter one a whole lot throughout this study, uh, when Jeremiah was called multiple, uh, was called, uh, and God told him not to be afraid. Uh, you know, God told, don't be afraid, I'll be with you, I'll deliver you uh, while you're doing this, this work for me. And I've found that to be really encouraging this week as I've read through this a few times that God took care of Jeremiah and he, he came through. It's made me think about Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, where Jesus tells his disciples, even the hairs of their head are numbered so they shouldn't fear. Um, you know, especially in the times we're in right now, the tension, the fear, the turmoil around us, we can look to these chapters, to the fall of Jerusalem, and we can see the destruction and the calamity, that, that's part of it, but we can have faith strengthened by looking at Jeremiah and seeing uh, God take care of Jeremiah. We can have faith like Jeremiah and know that God will do the same for us. He will comfort us, care for us, provide for us what we need. And, and in the same way he did for Jeremiah, he's promised to do the same thing for those who believe and obey. It may not be immediate. It may not be easy. It may not feel safe, but God will provide. And God's will, uh, God, God's will, will be fulfilled. These events are also a great testimony to what can happen when God's people compromise with sin and turn away from God. When the people of Judah were faithful, no one could harm them. They were protected by the hand of God. 
But when they rebelled, no one could save them from the just and righteous hand of God. We will reap what we sow. Galatians 6 tells us that. Judah sowed idolatry, unfaithfulness, uh, disrespect, false, uh, false prophecy, human sacrifice. What did they reap? Destruction, calamity, and exile. What about us? What are our idols today? What, how are we being unfaithful to God? Have we turned our back to, to God? We're sowing our seeds right now. The things we think, the things we do, the things we say are sowing our seeds. What are we going to reap? Whatever it is, it's going to be complete and eternal. If we turn to him and obey, we will receive eternal blessings. If we rebel, eternal destruction. Let's make sure we're sowing the right kinds of seeds and learning from the example of Judah and the example of Jeremiah here. That's our class for this week. <clears throat> and just in time, I'm running out of uh, voice. Looks like I beat 55 minutes. Uh, uh, thank you so much for watching. Uh, I hope it's been useful to you in your own study. Next week, Lord willing, Brian uh, will lead us as we look at Jeremiah chapter 40 through 45 and focusing in on what happens after Jerusalem falls. Again, don't forget to check out our website and subscribe to our podcast for more Bible studies, sermons, and resources. And also, just a quick housekeeping note, um, make sure to check your emails in coming weeks as we begin to work towards potentially having these uh, adult studies together in the auditorium again. Uh, we can't wait for that day. Can't wait to be with you in person, hear your comments, and get feedback. Um, but let's look out for, for an email from the elders on that, and let's remember to continue to pray for our elders as they are leading us during this time. That's all I have for this week. Thank you, and be safe, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.